0: And since we began this series in the prayers of Paul, we've been going through the Apostle's heart. Going from Thessalonica, where he's explained how he loves his people there, that he's only spent, he only spent three weeks there. And he was torn away like a parent being torn away from a child. Um, And then we we went to Ephesus and we saw that Paul's concern for the Ephesian congregation was that they would grow together, being knit together in love, but that they would understand the mighty works of God and how God has actually worked in the history of his church and now in them, delivering them from the power of darkness and bringing them into a new citizenship with his son or through his son. And then 100 miles east towards Asia is a small city called Colossae, which we spent two weeks in last week. And here, this is a congregation that most people believe that Paul never actually met, but the word was so powerfully preached in Ephesus while Paul was there for three years that somehow Epaphras, who was a native of Colossae, 100 miles east, heard the gospel came to faith in Christ and ran back with that gospel to the city of Colossae. And actually, many people believe that he planted three churches because of what he heard. So he planted a church in Colossae. He planted a church in Laodicea, which was the overarching city at the time, which was known for all of its beauty and splendor. And then you had a third city called the Hierapolis. And that formed the the tri-cities area of Asia, And that's where Epaphras was. But today we go to Philippi and we wrap up our series. And my aim this morning is not that we just go through all of these prayers and we go through facts, 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 bullet points, bullet points, bullet points, but that we actually make these prayers our own. We all know that the Lord has invited us into his presence and that by prayer. But we all still need to grow in learning how to pray and what things we need to pray for. And there are times, like I said last week, that sometimes just our prayers are just groans or sometimes our prayer, prayers are just help, help me. But what we see in Paul is that Paul is praying specifically for the things that matter in the life of the church, the things that keep the church together together. And so what you'll find in Paul's prayers are not necessarily prayers for physical needs, although he does mention physical needs at the end of his letters, like taking up a collection or you provided for my needs. He mentions physical needs, but what he prays for is something that is more substantive than what's passing away, and that's the fact that we need to be rooted established in Christ, that we need to be firm, holding steadfast to his word, that we would be built up together in love, knitted together, so that we would grow up in Christ. And that's why if you go through all of Paul's prayers, what you'll find is that in Paul's prayers, there's a lot of overlap. So if you read Ephesians and you read Philippians and you read Colossians, you'll say, man, you just said the same thing. He's just taking a prayer and he's just, maybe he has a prayer book and he's going from city to city repeating the same things. No, that's not the case. What's, what is the case is that he's going from city to city understanding that these blood-bought sinners are in need of him to go before the throne of God asking that the Lord would provide strength for them to continue so that their lampstand is not removed. Amen. And that's really what's happening. This is a, this is not just where your eyeballs can rest on the the, 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 the landscape of our of our world and say this is all that there is. Like uh, in the 80s, what, what did uh, the scientist Carl Sagan say? The cosmos is all there is and all that ever will be. Denying the Lord and Reality is, it's not all that there is. If God made you and God created you for himself, then this, what you see, this living for the moment that many people do today is not all that there is. So what is my aim this morning? My aim this morning is that we would grow That we would grow in prayer. That we would grow, according to our text this morning, which is Philippians 1, verses 9 through 11. That we would grow in a discerning love, leading to a life of excellence and fruitfulness. And to put it more bluntly and to put it more plainly and simply, that you would learn to love each other. The people sitting right here across from you, that you would learn to love each other with a discriminating love. And we'll unpack that in just a moment. A discriminating love that leads you to live this life that you have. We don't know how long we have, right? We don't know the length of years that we have, but so long as you're alive, that you're leading this life with a discriminating love, the love of God, making the best possible choices in order to bear fruits of righteousness. And that's where we find ourselves this morning, Paul says in chapter 2 that he wants the Philippians to do all things without grumbling or disputing, that they would be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. The reality is is that every single... Christ-confessing, gospel-confessing church, every church that is faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ and to the work of His Spirit is a lampstand shining in the darkness of this world. That's really what you'll, you'll see when you see churches in the area. If they are confessing Christ, if they are holding fast Just like we sang that Christ will hold us fast. If we are holding fast to the word of life, then what you see is these men and women and children coming together, joining the heavenly chorus and singing as bright, shining lights in the midst of a dark world. And that's exactly what the churches that Paul writes his letters to were. They were brightly shining lights. And this assumes that the world is covered in darkness, right? This assumes that the world is deep in darkness, But why do we shine? This comes out of Daniel. If you've ever spent any time in the book of Daniel, Daniel is an exile, a young Jew who has been transported to Babylon. And Babylon is famous for having a religion that's set up that opposes the Lord, to which the Lord actually has to humble their king, cause him to go insane for a number of years before he recognizes that you are the true and living God. And so Daniel writes at the end of Daniel that the Lord's people will shine like stars in the heavens. And that's you this morning. You, even though it's nice and sunny, you might not feel glowing like you're glowing, but this is the reality of who you are. You are shining as bright lights in the midst of a dark and crooked and perverse world. And that's because of the Lord's work in you. And so what we have in... The book or the letter to the Philippians is Paul. He's writing as a prisoner. Uh, Some think that he's a prisoner in Ephesus. Some think that he's a prisoner in Rome. And they think that he's a prisoner in Rome because he says that all of the imperial guard, which is the secret service to the emperor, have heard the gospel. And so now he's writing this letter, whatever the case is, he's writing this letter from a place where he could possibly, he could, he could just complain about where he's at. He can say, I'm going to sue the government. He can complain about the, the legal status that as a Roman that he had and why am I in prison? I haven't done anything wrong. He can do all of these things, but instead he chooses to write a letter to encourage the faith of the Philippian congregation. Now what's Philippi? Well, like we said about Thessalonica, Thessalonica was a city that was established by uh, Alexander the Great's half-sister. This goes way back, deep histories, deep, deep, deep history, right? And so this city, Thessalonica, was established by Alexander the Great's sister, but Philippi was established by Alexander the Great's father, and so this was a very nice military city. In fact, Luke actually comments in the book of Acts that and this is the only thing this is the only city that he says this about. He says that this was the foremost colony of the Roman Empire. Which means that this city was a city of cities. Now, if you know if you know me, you know that I love cities. You know I love being sandwiched between other people in the subway, you know. You know that I love skyscrapers and you know I love I love cities because that 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 shows me that there's life that that's that, that's happening. You put me in the middle of nowhere in South Carolina, I start to wonder what's really going on. But when you look at the cities that Paul is going to, it's not that he's going to these cities in order to take a vacation or to kind of do a tour guide of all of these cities. He's going to these cities because they have strategic importance in the Roman Empire as the Spirit is moving him and his companions. And he's going there and the Lord is establishing his church in the midst of the Roman Empire. So as the emperors and as all of the people in the Senate are working to dominate the landscape of the world affairs, the Lord is subverting that, and he's planting his churches with his people, bringing them out of darkness into light and establishing a kingdom that will never, ever fade away. There's actually, it's funny, this weekend, uh, this week I was talking to my wife and... um, She asked the question, which is now going around over uh, social media. How often do you think about the Roman Empire? And apparently guys think about this all the time. (laughs) All the time. And it baffles the wives. But... The reality is, is that when you look at a Roman, an empire like Rome, or even America, or, or any other empire in the history of the world, these, they've come and they've gone, they've, they're blown away into the, into the, into the leaves of, of the pages of history. But then you look at the kingdom of heaven... And you see that whether it's in Philippi, whether it's in Thessalonica, whether it's in New York City, whether it's in Comac, wherever, wherever God's people are, this kingdom will never end. And this is why when you look through all of Paul's letters, you don't really see him going through the political systems of Rome. Nero burned half of the half of Rome down. He could have complained about that. He hanged Christians and he burnt them on public in, 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 in the public square in his own gardens. He gave his own gardens for the burning of Christians so that they can have light at night. And not one peep coming out of Paul except honor the emperor, fear God. Or that's Peter, but in Romans 13, you hear him saying that as well. Why? Because... The focus of their eyes are not on the kingdoms of this world, which at one point will become the kingdoms of our God. Mm. And if you believe Matthew 28, the Lord says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Mm. Or if you go to Colossians chapter 2, the Lord Jesus at his ascension has publicly put to shame all. All of the worldly powers, all of the heavenly powers that oppose the Lord of, the Lordship of Christ. So, where should our focus be? Well, Paul tells us where our focus should be. And this is the point of his prayer. That they would grow in love. Not necessarily situational savvy, but that they would grow in love for an express purpose. So the first thing, if you have your Bibles open, look with me in verse 9. He says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. A discerning love is what we need. This is, this is what we primarily, this is the foundation of his prayer. We need a discerning love. And this is not just the world's kind of love, which says, accept me for who I am, whatever gender I want to choose to be, whatever pronouns I want to be identified by. No, this is a discriminating love. Mm -hmm. Even though the Lord loves all of his creation, he has a special affection for his people that he doesn't have for anyone else. And this affection that he has for his people, this tender love that he has for his people is expressed in the Upper Room Discourse where the Lord Jesus says, the Father himself loves you. Or with Jesus' high priestly prayer, again, like I said earlier, I do not pray for the world. Well, why don't you pray for the world, Jesus? I thought God loved the world. And this is because he has a particular affection for you, his people, and for the people in Philippi so much so is this love so much so discriminating is this love that it's actually described in wedding language in revelation 21 and 22 the marriage supper of the lamb or revelation 19 21 and 22 and so the love that christ has for his church is a love that is reserved in the sense for a bridegroom and his bride which is very different from the way A bride or a bridegroom should love everyone else. And so this discerning love that he is asking for is a love that is modified by knowledge, a growing knowledge of the Lord himself. You grow in the knowledge of the Lord. This is what Peter says at the end of his letter, 2 Peter three eighteen. But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is saying the same exact thing. I want your love to grow more and more with all knowledge and with all discernment. Now, the word discernment is actually a discriminating word, like I've said repeatedly over and over again. But this means to test things out. You're testing things. You're looking at life and you're you're learning to love your brothers and sisters in a way that's going to be distinct from the world. And what does that look like? You're willing to lay your life down for them. You're willing to sacrifice all that you have for them. You hear about a brother or sister who's in need and you say, you know what? This is going to put me out, but I'd rather do this for my brother and sister and have them live with my discomfort Rather than me waiting until I'm okay enough to help them out. This is what we grew up with in the Bronx. When we, we would hear about the needs of others. Well, this is going to put me out. I can't, I can't let them stay at our house. Or I can't give them clothes. We, we only have two shirts. We only have two cans in the, in the pantry. How am I going to... Uh, I understand that he doesn't have any or she doesn't have any. But this is going to put me out. And the love of Christ says, one, Deuteronomy 8, it is the Lord who gives you the power to wealth. In other words, all of your income is based on the Lord's provision. Not on the paycheck that comes every two weeks or every month. Every single thing that you have, the jacket that you're wearing, the money that you have in your account, even the existence of any banking system is dependent on the Lord's provision. And so why do we put ourselves out for the sake of our brothers and sisters? Because the Lord Jesus laid his life down for the sake of his people. And that's the groundwork of the ethics that we see in Philippians, where Paul says in chapter 2, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Why, Paul? Why do I have to do that? For goodness sake? Well, that's what the Christmas songs teach you. Be good for goodness sake right? But that doesn't mean anything. Why would we be good for goodness' sake? Unless we have a foundation for someone to define what good is. And so when we come to Christ, we understand what not only goodness is, but what love is. What is love? It's knowledgeable because it finds its home in the very character of God. And not only does it find its home in the character of God, but it also grows in discernment so that you are able to say, that's not love, but this is. That's not love, but this is. That might be kindness, but this is love. And in fact, if you want to, if you're dense like me, and I need an actual definition, 1 John chapter 4, verse 9 and 10 tells us. I'll read that for you. 1 John chapter 9, verse 4. The Apostle John writes, writing to the church at Ephesus, he says, in this is love, or I'll start in verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation, what does that mean? That means that God had an issue, an eternally Significant issue that caused, that was divi- uh, dividing us from fellowship with God. And God needed to remedy that. Only God can do that. We couldn't remedy it ourselves. And so he sends his son to satisfy the wrath of God against sin so that we would be living in fellowship forever with him. That is love. And so Christian love is meant to model that. You are offended by somebody? You are wronged by your brother and sister. Well, First Corinthians 13, love covers a multitude of sins. We lay our lives down and we say, even though I've been wronged by you, I've wronged Christ a thousand times. A thousand times. And yet, in His love and in His mercy, He draws me back. And that becomes the basis of this kind of love Love that is characterized by these two qualities, knowledge and discernment, is not the world's love. It's not the world's love. This is the kind of love that is able to make clearly informed decisions with a specific purpose in mind. What's the goal of loving? Well, he tells us in verse 10. So if verse 9 provides the foundation, verse 10 provides the purpose. Why? Why are we doing this, Paul? You know, sometimes, and and this is one of the reasons why I love New Yorkers. I live for a time in the South and I I say, I'm thankful to be in New York. (laughs) Because New Yorkers will tell you what's on their minds before they even consider whether it's going to land on on you in a good way or a bad way. They'll tell you what they're thinking and then they'll say, oh, I'm sorry, did that offend you? (laughs) And that's just the way it is. But if we wanted to do that with Paul, let's ask the question. Let's put Paul against the wall and say, Paul... Why are, you ask, ask, why are you praying for these things? What are you doing? Why are you praying that our love would grow? And Paul will tell you. Paul will not tell you that it's because I want you to be loving, kind people for the sake of being loving and kind so that I can get a Christmas gift on Christmas. It's not so that you can take me out to lunch or to dinner. It's so that you would be able to approve, verse 10, what is excellent. And so... Be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So if we have a discerning love, now he's leading us into the purpose, which is an excellent life. To approve of the best things. The people at Philippi knew the difference between what was good and what was excellent. They knew the difference. This is the difference in Philippi between a Walmart and high-end Gucci. Right? This is, they knew how to pick their things. You brought a military-grade weapon to them. They said, nope, this, is, this won't do. This will do. You brought them sandals from another city. No, that won't do. This will do. And so in every way, the Philippian people were very discriminating. They were proud to be that. That ran in their veins. This is who they were by nature. And so if you take a Philippian and you bring him to Rome, the first thing he's going to be looking at or she's going to be looking at is, is this decorated nicely? Is this the best that we can possibly do? Can we get this to be a little bit better? Because they're thinking of their home. But for us who have been born of God, he is saying that I want your love to grow in the knowledge and in all discernment of the Lord so that you may be able through every single part of your life and every single circumstance you would be able to approve what is excellent this doesn't mean that you go to the store and you say well I'm going to pick the best tomatoes because this actually has more to do with situations that you encounter on a daily basis this is for all the nominal Christians on the evangelical <coughs> landscape of America this is troubling and it should be troubling, because this means that you can't remain a mediocre Christian. You can't remain as a nominal Christian in Christ's kingdom. This means that the expectation that Paul has, and all of the, all of the apostles and the entire scripture, God himself has of his people, is that, is that they would be growing, and growing to maturity and excellence. Why? Why? Because there's a day coming, the day of Christ. And the day, that great wedding day where all of God's people will meet Christ and all of our brothers and sisters in the air is a day where the glory of God will shine through all of God's people so that he will be glorified in his people. Like 2 Thessalonians 1.10 says, Christ will come and he will, be, he will come to be glorified in his people. And what does that look like? That looks like living your life as if he's coming today. Living your life before the face of God, understanding that you are in living communion with the Lord right here, right now. So that whether you're washing dishes at home, you're do, or, you're, or you're taking off the trash, or you're driving down Jericho Turnpike, you're doing it to the praise and the glory of God. Putting the needs of others first over and above yours. And then when it comes to the congregational setting, coming together so that we grow together in love, you are looking, you're listening carefully to the needs of your brothers and sisters and you're finding ways to point them back to Christ so that they too will approve of what is good, what is excellent, and they would do that with a discerning kind of love. We see evidences of Paul's growing in love and knowledge and discernment In chapter 1, verses 21 through 25. And I'll read that for you. He says, and everyone, every single person is, every single Christian probably knows these verses by heart. It's probably printed on the back of some sweater or in some (laughs) Christian store. But he says, "For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. So hold on to that word fruitful or those words fruitful labor, because we'll get to that in verse 11. He says, if I am to live, then that means fruitful labor to me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. So now Paul is looking at the decisions he has to make in his life. He's in prison. You can't really go anywhere, Paul, because you're under house arrest by the Roman imperial guard. So what are you talking about? Like you're going to die or you're going to live? Which, which is it? And he says, I can't choose because I'm a prisoner for Christ. And he says, for if I live, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart. In other words, I want to die. Mm. I want to die and I want to be with Christ is what he says. I want to be there in the very presence of Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh, and this is where Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, where he says, put the interests of others uh, ahead of yours, comes into view. And it comes into view very early on so that when he gets to chapter 2, you're not taken off guard. But for but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Why? <coughs> Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. There it is. What is the need that every church has? Is it to expand the children's ministry? Is it to expand the band so that every time you snap a, a picture of a church, you just see the band up front? No. The need for every church is that they would progress with joy and faith so that when trials and afflictions come, they can look down at their feet and they can say, I'm standing on Christ and I am not moving. Mm -hmm. There is no way that the winds of my afflictions will ever move me away from Christ. What did Job's wife say when he went through his afflictions? He lost all his family. And what did she say? Why don't you just curse God and die? Now, before we're too hard on Job's wife, that was a very hard and difficult circumstance to go through. All in one day. When you have three messengers coming to your doorstep and, you're, and telling you that you lost this and you lost this and you lost this, what, what else can you do? The, the, the knees are knocked out from beneath you and you have nowhere left to stand. But what does Job say at one point? He says, I know that my Redeemer lives. And he speaks by... And the question that we have to come to as we're coming to these verses, as we're coming to this text, and even the Philippians too, is, are you standing by faith? Are you living by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave His life for you? Or are you just coasting through your Christianity? And this is why I said this might make many of us uncomfortable, and it should It should make us uncomfortable in a good way to move into growing in the knowledge of our Lord so that we can approve what is excellent, so that we would be pure and blameless. Those words are not just throwaway words for Paul, pure and blameless. In other words, if you ever look at something, at a piece of pottery, one commentator says they had these tests in the marketplace where they would hold up pieces of pottery And the finer the pottery, the more money it was worth. But some of these dealers would actually take (coughs) glue and they would try to glue the pieces together and hide them with paint so that people would buy them. And so a discerning buyer would go into these shops and would say, I'd like that, but I want to hold it up to the light and see if there's any cracks in it. And that's what Paul is saying. He, didn't, he doesn't want any cracks to be in you. He wants you to be as transparent so, as you can possibly be so that on the day of Christ, when someone looks at you, when the world throws all of its accusations at you, Christ can say, but I bought her and I bought him. And she is and he is pure and blameless because of my righteousness and because of the lives that they lived. They lived by faith in the Son of God so that all of their good works were done by faith. These are very different words than what the world will tell you. You go from excellent living to fruitful labors. And we've seen this word before being filled in verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. We've seen that word in Colossians. He wanted them to be filled with the knowledge of God so that they would be able to discern as well. But what does this filling with the fruit of righteousness mean? And I take it to mean that all the works that they do in this life, all the works that they do as a congregation, all the works that they engage in, when I'm talking about works, I'm not talking about just big name works, I'm talking about even just to the most <coughs> mundane of things, of changing the trash in the bathrooms or the picking up of a pencil on the floor, whatever it is, the whole orientation of your life is fixed on pleasing the Lord, doing what pleases God. Not because the fruit of your labors is going to earn His favor, but because you already have His favor, now you just want to live freely for Him. And the fruitful labors is what He is praying for. He's praying that the fruit of righteousness would come through Jesus Christ in them. What are those fruitful works of righteousness in Paul? Again, as a New Yorker, you pull them to the side and you say, I get it, you're preaching to us, you're telling us what you want. But I want to ask you, let me corner you and ask you what those fruits of righteousness look like in your life, because I want to see it. So, what would Paul tell you? Well, in chapter 1, he'll tell you, I was publicly identifying myself as a slave of Christ without embarrassment. In verse 2, I am willing, willingly reaching out to you, Philippians, even though I'm in prison and reminding you of the grace and peace in God, in our God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm doing this without being ashamed. The disposition that I have is a disposition of thankfulness because of what the Lord has done for me. And it's a willingness to both remember and to pray for you, Philippian Church. I could just be in my jail cell and I could just complain about the living conditions that I find myself in. Instead, I'm choosing to think about you because what's needed is your growth. So I wrote a letter. In verses 7 through 8 in chapter 1, it's my open disclosure of love for you, which is not a superficial emotionalism. In fact, I say I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. In verses 19 through 26 of of chapter 1, it's my willingness to forego seeing Christ Jesus, even though I know I will be free from pain and suffering in his presence. But I will gladly stay on this earth if it means your progress and joy in faith. Would you do that? Would you say, man, to be in God's presence, the pain might hurt in the final moments of your life, and you might just say, please take me, Lord. That happened with Martin Lloyd-Jones. Martin Lloyd-Jones, about to die, and someone wanted to give him pain medication. He said, no, 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 no. And he's, he's ready to go, to be with his Savior. But Paul was saying, I can, if I could, I, I'll pause that, because... Your growth in Christ is necessary. When was the last time that you heard a pastor in one of these megachurches? I'm not trying to tear down all megachurches, but what I am saying is there is a sense in our evangelical culture today where the pastors are ghosting their people. <coughs> and they leave and they go and retreat to their mansions, they retreat to their houses in the safety and luxury of their homes. But they won't lay down their lives. They spend $450 on a pair of Nikes. They buy all of these things and fine, if you want, if that's your taste, that's your taste. But what is the character of your life? For Paul, he'll say, I worked hard so that I wouldn't be a burden to any of you. I worked hard and I provided not just for me, but for my friends who were co- accompanying me. Like Timothy and Silas, and all of these people that came with me, I provided and when you try to press in and say, No, let us provide hospitality to us, we graciously accept it, but that's not our preference. We wanted to work. Because we wanted to work for your joy. That was Paul's character, that was his disposition. In chapter 2, verse 4, Paul will tell you that I put the interests of you, Philippians, over and above my own. And so we have to ask the question as we're being called to live a life that is modeled after the Lord Jesus Christ and by his apostles. Are we willing to do the same thing? It was Paul's willingness to praise Timothy and Epaphroditus and hide himself in the background. He praises them. Are you willing to recede into the background so that you let other people shine? That is called humility. This is what John the baptizer said when people were starting to compare ministries. Look at the church over there. Jesus is baptizing more people than you, John. What are you doing? You're not doing what he's doing. Get with the program. Maybe you need a better structure. Maybe you need you know, better social media presence because Jesus is getting a lot more followers than you. And John's response, he must increase and I must decrease. And anyone who desires to live a life that is modeled on our Lord Jesus Christ must do the same thing. So that you are willing to recede into the background. Not so that you can say, well, I'm just not going to say anything. Fold your arms, I'm, not just, gonna, I'm just not going to say anything. Nope. And you kind of do it half-hearted. No. You do it because you love to put people first. <coughs> knowing that Christ has made you His own. And so a discerning love leads to excellent living. Excellent living is not living in the Swiss Alps or in the southeast part of Italy. But excellent living is being able to make decisions based on the word of God, leading you in every area of life. And that leads to a fruitful life. We've seen Paul's prayers in four of his letters. And the substance of all of these prayers has more to do with the welfare of their souls than anything else. And what I would challenge you this morning with is, is is this how you're praying? Are you praying? and 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 I'll tell you, even praying this week for our church, our congregation, praying for you. It's exactly what we see in Colossians chapter 4, verse 12. Epaphras struggles to pray for you. Why? Because it is a spiritual war. Naturally, we do not default to wanting to pray for other people because we want to think of all the issues that arise when we get on our knees and pray. We think of all the issues that are facing our own lives. And yet we have an intercessor who lives to make intercession for his saints night and day, as he prays for us. So Lord teach us how to pray. Is what we say. Lord teach me to pray. Help me to put the needs of my brothers and sisters first. Help me to look to you. To grow in love. To grow in all knowledge. To grow in discernment. So that I would be able to serve one another, my brothers and sisters. You know I'll close with, uh, with this. Something that my uh, professor said a couple of weeks ago. And this is regarding missions and evangelism. We're a small congregation in the middle of Comac, and I thought how fitting it is for us. There are so many churches that are looking to outsource talent in order to grow their presence and impact in a community. That's a temptation, a real temptation. Right, you go. I was part of a church planting program, and this is what they wanted us to do: outsource all of the talent and try to find a way to get into the community so that we would impact them, whether it's through this or that, or this or that, or this or that. Overlooking the congregation that was already present. But something that my uh, professor said this over the course of the past couple of weeks is that in the Lord's providence, you are here by design. Today, in the Lord's providence, not only are you here by design today, but you are part of this church by the Lord's design in the Lord's providence. Not only are you here part of this church and uh, involved in the life of this church by his design, but so are all the people that live in our area by design. You are here and they are here by the Lord's providence and all of the gifts that are necessary for this community are here right now in this moment, in this time. Which means every single person sitting here this morning, including, I'm not sitting, but all of us together have gifts that the Lord has given to us that will contribute to the maturing of this congregation so that we, were, we would grow in the knowledge of Christ. And the question is, are you on board with that or are you coasting through life? And what many of us don't think in those terms. But it's all the body parts working together harmoniously so that the whole man is walking and praising the Lord. (coughs) If you have an issue with your pinky toe, your whole body will know it. If you have a paper cut, your whole body will know it. But if someone is struggling in our congregation who seems to be insignificant, will everybody know it? If we are designed to be like the body, to be the body of Christ, how do we know when our brothers or sisters are struggling? Unless we are doing our part with the gifts that the Lord has given to us to build one another up. Well, that's, it takes not only a prayer of love, but it takes knowledge, discernment, so that all together we would be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. All of our decision making is to be based on these things. So, whether we move to another city or we stay here in New York or go wherever we go, our focus is on the praise and the glory of Christ and the building up of one another in our congregations. This is why I tell people all the time, and we'll close with this, but this is why I tell people all the time when they say, Should I move? To uh, the West Coast? To Portland, Oregon? Should I move to Cleveland, Ohio? Should I move back to New York? And my my, my answer will always be this. Is there a godly congregation and a shepherd who's willing to take you in? Will they shepherd your soul? Because your success is not dependent on careers, but your success is dependent on whether the Lord chooses to prosper you or not. And the priority of our lives are not what comes in in our bank accounts, but what the Lord is doing right here and right now. So, pray, Haven Church, for love, a discerning love, so that we would be pure and blameless in the day of Christ. And not just that, but that we would also bear fruits of righteousness. Let's pray.